Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Let's start all that again, because we're not going to the Grampians right now. Where are we going? Well, we're going to Australia, basically, a broader context of Australia. I've got a slightly different tome. We got started. I've got a collection of essays by a variety of authors entitled Arab Australian Other, Stories on Race and Identity. And one of the authors is with us today, Hannah Asafiri. So, Hannah, welcome to 3CR. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm going to begin with a question that highlights my ignorance. When we say Arab, what do we mean? Look, often um, I think uh, the whole concept or construct has been uh, used politically um, and it means different things to different people in different contexts. If we just took it at face value, countries who speak Arabic, um, uh, of which there are 22 across the globe, um, ranging mostly located across the Middle East, North Africa and East Africa. But there's an oversimplification in many ways, which sort of speaks to what we need to do as people and and as a nation to recognise what's going on there. But, for example, there are stories here that Mm. look at these stereotypical assumptions and prejudices. There's one essay called Racism and Recipes Mm. by Ryan Alnatur, and who's being confronted by a waitress. He's taken up a job in Rockhampton. You know, we shouldn't have to keep halal, mate. We shouldn't have to uh, change the menu. We shouldn't cater for that. Mm. I mean, this was his experience, and he's being confronted here. I mean, what does that suggest about us as Australians? Look, I think, um, and I think, just going back to the book, it's important to place it in a context that uh, at the moment, the whole notion of Arabness has been stereotyped, has become synonymous with Islam, uh, Islam, Arab, uh, conflated, and the undercurrent of Islamophobia is framing the conversation and associations with being Arab. Um, so, yes, we can sit here and try and reason and look at where Arab is and where it came from, but if we put it back to the context of the book and why the book is such an important legacy, I think, for Australia, um, is that the book attempts to... Um, I think, be an expression of our plurality, our diversity, um, recognising that Arab is not Islam, that Arab is not gender-specific, that Arab uh, can be a whole host of rich uh, cultural expression, and it tries to navigate itself in a world that is being hostile to um, the construction of being Arab and and uh, being Muslim. There's that broad, then, social picture, but there's also a personal picture yes. that comes out here. The personal struggles of individuals in The Third Time I Broke my father's heart, mm, Ruby, Ruby Hamad, yes. yeah, pretends she isn't Arab. Yes. So there's this denial in yeah. certain instances, mm. um, and Elias Johansson uh, also 
has the a Palestinian. Le- the Palestinian. Well, he has a Lebanese out. mother yes, yes. and a Palestinian father yes. who's coming out. And so within the culture itself as well, mm. there there are these personal struggles taking place. But I think that is uh, inevitable when we internalise and have to negotiate. And that's why I say the the cultural and the social context is important because it is the the context in which we're negotiating and navigating our daily lives. These aren't just simple propositions, conceptual ones. When I talk about the hostility and the Islamophobia and the associations of Islam with all that is Arab, um, which is savagery, negativity, at odds with Western civility, all those things aren't simply theoretical propositions, that they impact the lived experience of individuals so that we internalise it to such an extent. I mean, when I read uh, some of those stories, not only at times did my heart melt and at times broke and at times I cried and at times elated and felt validated, um, but absolutely understood each and every one of those journeys and why we would deny who we are. But it gets to that very personal Mm. price individuals Mm. pay when we have that imprint over the layering Mm. of of, uh, sort of making assumptions about groups in general. Which leads me to your essay, Islam Reclaiming the Narrative. Now, one point that you make, and there are, there are several points that I don't know whether we're <laughs> yes, going to get through yes, them yes. all, but there's this point that I found fascinating, which is common to several other authors in this collection, mm-hmm. and it's an acknowledgement of the context of dispossession. You state, we are the benefactors of dispossession. And this really speaks to an ongoing dilemma mm. of how we're all taking advantage of an an inherent aggression in people that saw the original inhabitants of Australia mm. dispossessed. Yeah, look, um, I mean, I'm somebody who, especially in this current climate where a world is polarised and um, everything that we do is happening in a social context and in order to reconcile, if we are a people who are advocating social justice, community justice, human rights, which are foundational principles for me of Islam, uh, foundational principles and the hallmarks of Western democracies, um, recognising that we've departed from those, to me, reacquainting back with them requires that we tell the truth. And truth-telling is a natural ally of justice if we cannot tell the truth about the history of this country and no matter our causes, that we are benefactors of, yes, we may be vilified, we may be persecuted and prosecuted and there may be a whole host of aggressive hostility levelled at Muslims, notwithstanding the fact that we are benefactors of being on land that has not been ceded. Yeah, but it speaks to, in many ways an inherent aggression in society Mm. in some ways where this dispossession seems to be continuing and an incredible irony Mm. that often people who have dispossessed then are coming to Australia uh, in many ways to try and take advantage of a dispossession. It's this endless loop. Well, I think think it's a a bit... Uh, probably a bit more nuanced and complex. I don't think the people that are coming to Australia... Uh, what, what I do think is Australia um, has an opportunity, has an extraordinary opportunity to right the social wrongs. And instead of our leadership and governance speaking to that sentiment, we instead continue to deny the basic 
historical truth of the history of dispossession of this country and the continued. And that that has been reinforced by leader upon leader from Howard to others. I think Paul Keating certainly endeavoured, at least symbolically, and Kevin Rudd did. But the reality of... Um, because I, I come back to you cannot have a little bit of justice for some people. You Social justice, community justice, uh, concepts and notions of human rights and freedoms are applicable to all. If your causes... Uh, simply reinforce the inequality of another, then your causes are not worthy of advocating. Do we have the capacity to address it? Absolutely. Do we have the means as well? We have the capacity, the means, the resources and the intelligence. We don't have the political willpower. And to me, we are governments who... Um, uh, I guess similar in following in the the norms and footsteps of what's happening across the globe, reinforcing systems of inequality, systems of misogyny, systems of um, and and polarizing and dividing society. That does not mean the community and public sentiment is. Uh, Consistent with those views, well, their this, government views. This comes out in your essay in that there's a dysfunction in the way societies are operating mm. today. I mean, again, back to that the title, Reclaiming. Mm. Absolutely. Um, you address Islamophobia, firstly, by suggesting that the principles of Islam need to be reclaimed. So and and I guess um, for for us and certainly for me as um, as an activist as a human rights advocate as a business owner as somebody who's committed to the empowerment of women and you know a self proclaimed absolute feminist within the context of Islam I've found my empowerment inside Islam and also uh, see and and have experienced the undercurrents of Islamophobia and how they're unfolding around us and uh, the call for um, and I'll just give a simple example of, of how nuanced the conversation is and how as Arabs slash Muslims um, we are seen as othered inside the whole conversation. So I cannot be a Muslim feminist if... Um, I can't be a Muslim and a feminist because those two things apparently are at odds, that yeah. uh, femini- feminism cannot recognise itself in Islam as a liberating faith. Um, so I'm somebody who not only challenges that but challenge the whole, challenges the whole foundations of a society and societies, no matter whether they be democracies or dictatorships, that they are founded on the subjugation of women. We simply just utilise and use different modes and rituals and cultural institutions to cement and reinforce that disparity between the genders. Is that also happening within the Christian Western society as well. So it's common. Not just Christian Western society. I mean, look at Australia and what we're doing. If if our hallmarks are about human rights, social justice, (laughs) look at how we treat uh, asylum seekers. Look at how we treat Indigenous people. Look at how... um, So I think the departure from the foundational principles of uh, fair, compassionate, humane societies is being witnessed across the globe, not just in the Muslim world. And certainly we are here to interrogate the Muslim world, but also to to crystallise, I guess, what we're doing in the West in our own departures. Look at what happened to Julia Gillard 
in when we claim that oh western civilization and western civility is the place of democracy and human rights well it depends on for whom mm-hmm. uh, for middle middle class white men absolutely but anybody else the more you are marginalized the less you see the equity equality and respect you also then speak to the confusion between religion culture and tradition mm. they each confound each other yes so um as a Muslim woman, um, I don't know how much time we have. But, Only a few minutes uh, left, I'm afraid. Uh, so I'll try and um, just simply touch on that uh, we have conflated um, Islam with culture, tradition, and often when we have these conversations, we resort back to, yeah, but Islam back in the day was, you know, the forefront of astrology, astronomy, architecture, and we proud ourselves on all those historical displays. And absolutely, but I'm also somebody that interrogates what's happening now. There is not a Muslim country in the world who will stack up to the principles of Islam. When tested against those foundations, there's not a country that can hold itself to uh, equity, fairness, justice, the empowerment of women, the enabling of the poor. So... um, that also needs to be reclaimed and acknowledged and we need to reintroduce um, an understanding of what are the foundations of faith and their principles and how do we reacquaint with them? I think the same question could apply to Western civilization, sure. etc. Sure. But to end on a positive note, yes. if we can, yes. and it speaks to the importance yes. of books like this. Like this, this yes. Uh, you have Randa Abdel Fattah's uh, 71 Years of Words mm. as the final essay. Mm. And there's almost a poetic resonance yes. in it because after all the struggles um, and the Nakba having taken place, she says basically uh, in a paragraph entitled Witness, we start to speak to write and we do not know when or how to stop because it is unending. The Nakba is not an anniversary. It is repeated every day across the West Bank, Gaza, Israel, the refugee camps in the diaspora. 71 years of bearing witness, 71 years of millions of testimonies. We write and we speak because it is all we have left. Absolutely. And the power of words, Mm. which speaks to the importance of books like this. Absolutely, and that's why the importance of a book like this in the legacy of Australia and that it can not continue to other Arabs, uh, but see our contribution as something that contributes to the the um, the mosaic that is Australia, the multiculturalism that and is the Australia. need for an ongoing dialogue mm. to keep addressing these things mm. and bring us back to Absolutely. basic principles. And Tony Morrison, I mean the late Tony Morrison, rest in power, rest in peace, rest, um, talks about the importance of words and how the only thing we have also, um, interestingly, is words and how we communicate, which importantly, and I think I go back to, uh, I do believe we have the capacity to right the wrongs. I believe we are founded on human decency. Um, I also think we need to have some conversations around freedom, expression, bigotry, and all those difficult conversations we need to learn to manage better. The book is Arab, Australian, other stories on race and identity, and I've been talking to Hannah Asafiri. Thank Thank you you, so much. Thank you. Wow. (laughs) Well done, Hannah. Well, Grampians. Look, it's a spectacular place, and um, if you've been there, you'll know that 
It's just nice to look at, but if you get up high, it's the views. And just the name, Wildflower Ridge, gives you that sense of height and beauty. It's also the title of Maya Linnell's debut novel, Wildflower Ridge. Welcome. Thank you very much, Jan. It's lovely to be here. Ah, well, you write about the region so lovingly. Has it been your home? Well, Jan, the Grampians holds a very special place in my heart because uh, when I first met my husband, before he was my husband, um, he was living um, in Stall. And so, of course, right. it overlooks the Grampians. The house that he was living in had this beautiful view um, of those beautiful blue mountains. And we moved up there um, to be closer to his work. Um, before we were married. So it's been a really nice place to base a book. Well, Wildflower Ridge has been the home of the McIntyres for four generations. Now, who are they? So the main character in Wildflower Ridge is uh, Penny McIntyre, and she is one of four sisters. So we've got Diana, we have Lara, and we have Angie, and the father, Angus McIntyre, are all very important parts of this story. Um, and so, as you said, they're from a fourth-generation Merino farm, and it's based in the West, Western District. So you do have the backdrop of the Grampians from the opposite side of Stool, where we were living. Um, and so it's a fictional town of Bridgefield that the farm is set near. And um, I've loosely based that quite close to Hamilton, um, between Hamilton, Eden Hope, mm. Horsham type of area. There's, of the Ford sisters, there's one who lives away from the area. Who's that and what does she do? So Penny um, decided to leave the farm as soon as she was out of high school. She wanted to um, head for the bright lights of the city. And she's been working in the city in marketing and doing really well at her job. So she's got a great career. In fact, she's just been, you know, had a double page spread in the, uh, <laughs> the good weekend with her herself and her um, boyfriend, Vince, as Melbourne's hottest corporate couple. Well, when she left 15 years ago, it was an after an argument with her mother and an escape from a boyfriend whose family became, well, ill-reputed in the area. This is a quote. No one else in town wanted anything to do with the Patterson boys. So why has she come back? So poor Penny has a bit of a... Um she has an illness and things start to go pear-shaped pretty quickly. Um, it's thrown out of her control, but she has a very controlling boss and, you know, they're all workaholics there in the Melbourne office. And the boss says, this is not reflecting very well. They're collapsing in the boardroom, <laughs> losing the client. And um, Vince organised himself to, well, he couldn't look after her because he had a, a job in Sydney. So he sort of said, go back to the farm. <laughs> And she wonders if Vince broke his leg on the eve of her flying out to a Paris conference. What would she do? Hmm, there's maybe a little tension there between those two. Well, in the 15 years that she's been away, her, her sisters have also changed. So what are they doing? So we've got Diana, who's the mother hen, and she's got four very rambunctious boys. Um, we have Angie, who set up her own beauty salon, and we have Lara, who's working at the Bush Nursing Centre, and she has a daughter as well. But things aren't exactly rosy in all of their lives either. No, it's Lara that... Um, Penny doesn't get on with particularly well. In fact, well, I'm going to get Maya to read a little bit from her book, Wildfire Ridge. So this section's about a third of the way into the book and the tension between Lara and Penny has just been ramping up ever since she's been home. So I'll read this paragraph and this is Penny speaking. And Penny says... 
coming back home wasn't an appealing option, but at the time it was the only option. I was perfectly happy in the city, and I'll be even happier when I return. I want to get back to my life, back to Vince, back to the city where no one reads my mail before me at the post office or feels entitled to offer advice about my life. No wonder Sam left. I'd be sick of your bad, bad attitude day in, day out too. Don't take your anger out on me, Lara, just because your life's gone pear-shaped. Oh, so we know there's something wrong with Lara's relationship with uh, Sam and Evie. Anyway, her father, Angus, has just employed or has has had a farm manager. And who's that? So the farm manager at McIntyre Park Marino Stud just happens to be Tim Patterson, who Mm. who is the man that uh, Penny was running away from in the first place. And, you know, her father is really quite relies on Tim, the son he always wanted, and also welcomes Tim. Tim's brother onto the farm. Tell us about Eddie. So I wanted to put Eddie in because I feel um, if you're going to have a platform and write a book and it go out to many different readers across the country and also it's going into America, I'm pretty excited about. Oh, well done. Um, I I wanted to be able to use that platform um, as well as I could and talk about diversity. So I know that there's, you know, it's not often that you'll have um, disabled characters, characters in wheelchairs, characters with different mental health issues um, and things like that. So I really wanted to weave some of those things as well as some of the voices um, of rural women in our community. But Eddie was just this wonderful little character who appeared um, as Tim's brother and Tim looks after him and, mm, and lives caring. with him. He's, it's a really nice side to his personality as well. And Eddie's got Down syndrome. So it's just, it's, it's a really nice thing that, it's, it's, it is, it's a nice read. <laughs> but uh, Tim makes, he makes, Everybody knows that what he really wants to do is save up and buy farmland. And it is. It's really interesting because um, there are a lot of people that live on the land that would love to have their own farm, but with financial circumstances these days, that can be such a, a hard dream to actually chase. So Tim is quite determined. But in the meantime, while he is saving for his farm, um, he's working at the McIntyre's property and just really learning the ropes from Angus. Now, having uh, Penny and Tim so close, we get a lot of erst. Now, this is, this is a term that I learned last week, erst, U-R-S-T. And it is? Jen is talking about unresolved sexual tension. And given that Wildflower Ridge is a rural romance, there's always going to be a bit of a given that there's a bit of, um, a bit of love, interest and, and romance throughout the story. And what better character to have is someone who's good with his hands. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, uh, you know, the local doctor in town knows Penny and her family very well and says, you know, she has to do some exercise. But, you know, Penny, being a city girl, she's, you know, used to these dynamic exercises and, and, and the da- going down the gym and boxing and things. And the only thing in town is yoga. <laughs> and not only yoga, but yoga with the senior citizens class. Yes. <laughs> So Penny rolls up to the first yoga workshop and um, there's these fantastic lilac-haired ladies, including Nana Pearl, who is Tim's um, grandmother, and they've got these jaunty slogans across their running singlets, things like CWA, chicks with attitude, and we'll (laughs) run for chocolate, things like that. Um, and, And I wanted to put that in there because... Back um, in southwest Victoria where we live, we decided to start up a Pilates class in our local community hall and it just becomes this fantastic meeting place. So people are there for the exercise but really it's what happens before the class and the conversations afterwards that are the really um, community building um, atmosphere. It's a really nice 
um, resource to draw on. And of course, there's everything. Every the postmistress, she knows everything because <laughs> she reads everything. And Vince, you know, sort of sends cards to Penny, a penny from the city, and the whole town knows about it. And the talk in town is that Vince is a knob, but I'm not sure what kind of knob—a doorknob or a knob of butter. Says Cameron. This is Diana's son, uh, the one of four kids, who says to Penny, "Please help me fill out this. Help me with this volunteering job." So what's that? volunteering job. Um, so Marion Keys talks about the concept of baking therapy and baking mm. yourself happy. And I wanted to touch on that because I love baking myself. So nothing makes me happier than sitting there with a mixing bowl in one hand and a wooden spoon in the other, whether I've got one of my children <laughs> on either side dumping in a cup of flour and someone's cracking eggs over there. But I really find that's such a wonderful way to just stop focus on the task at hand. And so I wanted to thrust Penny right into that um, as, a, as a healing technique. Mm. And so that brings in a whole new world of drama because it's easy to stay apart on a 3,000-acre sheep farm, but when you're in a tiny little hall kitchen that's made for, you know, small groups of people, there's not much staying out of each other's way. And Eddie is one of the people in the group that you have to bake with. So Tim's there as well. Oh, there's more erst in the kitchen. <laughs> now, look, it's a, it, there's a lot of things on the farm too because it's a merino stud, so that means wool shearing and lambing and dorpers. Well, I know about dorpers now. And of course, there's the cost and safety of farm equipment and there's the ute and there's through it, you know, there's a lot of this little thing about, well, is it worth the money to spend on a quad bike to have a roll a, a roll bar? And that becomes prophetic, you know, like storytelling in there. And I hadn't heard the saying, where there is livestock, there is dead stock. <laughs> oh, ha, ha. Now, farms also, threat of fire, but not as bad as losing children. So, you know, we've got it all. And what's Vince doing in Sydney? He's with Charlotte. That's right. There's a lot of trouble for poor old Penny. This is another quote from the London branch. Her accent was pure boarding school posh and her short dresses were a regular topic of water cooler conversation. So you can get an idea there. So, look, page 148, I've got Tim saying, Tim couldn't hide the surprise in his voice. Kylie Minogue running for Prime Minister would have been less of a shock than this news. So there's another (laughs) 150 pages to read and to actually fit in. And it's a good read. It's a page-turning read. So well done, Maylinelle. And you've got three more books planned. That's right. Thank you, Jan. Um, Wildflower Ridge has been very well received, not just from rural romance readers. Bestseller list, I hear. (laughs) I was pretty chuffed. As a debut author, um, hearing that your book has been well received by readers is fabulous and then to hear that it's actually um, having some success in the bestseller charts was also a huge honour and it was very humbling to see my name up there amongst some amazing authors that I really admire. So these three new books will be covering the other three sisters. Look, it was just a, a, a good read. Farm life with no privacy or city life with corporate success. Penny must decide on which would be the most satisfying and with which man. I'm just thinking gives a new meaning to the word erstwhile. Oh, <laughs> oh, David, you and your vocabulary. Well, look, um, the, the other lovely thing about Mayor uh, Linnell's book is that it's got this music uh, country thread through it because 
you have a you've been on a radio station or been operating the panel in a radio station yourself. That's right, Jan. I used to have um, a show called Boots and All on a Friday night in Millicent <laughs> at five DFM, and so I focused on Australian country music, the modern stuff. So I couldn't help but thread. Um, you know, there's Lee Kernighan songs, there's a bit of Keith Urban. We talk about Troy Cassadaly. Yep. That's all on. Look, I've been having a lovely chat and a lovely read with uh, Mayor Linnell's book, Wild Flower Ridge, published by Alan and Unwin. And I talked to Hannah Asafiri about her essay in Arab, Australian, Other Stories on Race and Identity, which was a Picador Pan Macmillan release. And that's it. That, that takes us out for another week. We've had a very hectic half hour, <laughs> well, haven't I we? I tell you what, busy, busy, busy. <laughs> okay, thanks for listening. See you next week.